Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Patrick Brenner. I'm the president of the Southwest Public Policy Institute, and you are tuned in to another episode of SPPI TV, the public policy podcast of the Institute. Uh, today, our episode is uh, number 10, Solving the Interest Rate Cap Puzzle. And I am joined by some very distinguished guests. Um, please welcome Mr. John Berlaw, Senior Fellow and Director of Finance Policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. We've also got Andrew Duke, Executive Director of the Online Lending Alliance, and Todd J. Lewicki. George Mason University Foundation Professor of Law. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. It is a pleasure to have you all on the SPPI TV podcast. Um, welcome, welcome. Uh, I want to- Thank you for having us, Patrick. Yes. Um, John and Todd, I want to kick it off with you two on a discussion about how access to consumer credit um, and really how we, we actually got introduced and in, in the work that we've, uh, we've both done advocating on behalf of consumers trying to emulate the consumer experience and why access to credit is is so important um john why don't you start with a little bit of background about your work at the competitive enterprise institute well thank you and thanks for having me on patrick and uh, great work on uh, how the um uh, the predictable but still to many people unintended effect of you know price controls on uh, on small loans is affecting those um uh, at least this was advertised to, as helping at the competitive enterprise institute which is you know cei.org we pointed out that although some of the states have, have enacted bad policies such as new mexico and, and illinois and, and uh, others the root of the problem as far as the misinformation about small loans and interest rates um, uh, begins with, uh, with, with the federal government, with the Truth in Lending Act, saying that uh, almost all consumer loans have to be quoted as uh, annual percentage rate interest, even if, in the case of uh, some of the short-term loans, their duration is about two weeks. Uh, so it's an example that my colleague Matt Adams and I pointed out in the paper is that if you have a loan um, for like $200 with a $30 fee or interest on it, um, that is no, if you pay within the duration, that is 15%. But if you were to stretch that to a year, as and you have to as, as a lender, the, the law requirement requires this, that somehow comes out, if you would times that by, you know, the 26 pay periods or 26 two-week period during a year, 390%. So some of the activist groups, some who know better and some who don't say, oh, this is terrible, triple-digit interest rates, da-da-da-da-da. And you know, some of the ill-informed lawmakers just uh, take take that up and uh, and you know, as if it's, you know, um uh, these loans are 390% when they're really 15%, or if you take it out, you know, maybe longer, like you know, four-week period, it becomes 30%. And then the and then it's like it's like as you said the 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 unicorn they have really yet to find you know very few anybody really who actually pays that uh, triple digit and yet this is lowering the the, the loans that maybe the best option for a lot of you know both middle class and and uh, people in an, in in an emergency and lower income people so you the federal information misinformation federally sanctioned misinformation has kind of spread this bad policy throughout the state. 
John, thank you so much. I mean, that was a great introduction into the space. Um, what we're looking at across the country is individual states planning to implement uh, rate caps. They've done it in Illinois, they've done it in New Mexico. Uh, they tried and failed in South Carolina, but my understanding is they're just gonna ramp that up and try again. Todd, I wanna kick it over to you. Let's, let's talk more about how interest rate caps really affect the consumer credit and lending industry. And uh, let's let's identify exactly what type of loan products that we're talking about, too. Sure. And um, uh, and for those who want to know more, I uh, from during the 2021 year, I was um, the chairman, the chair of a task force, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, where we studied uh, consumer finance and consumer financial protection. Um, and we spend a lot of time in that report talking about um, small loans and access to credit. Um, and I kind of think about the old saying that many people have heard that uh, when it comes to uh, contractors to repair your house, you can do um, uh, you can do good, uh, what good, cheap or on time, uh, pick two. Um, and in many ways, it's the same thing when it comes to consumer credit. You can get good, cheap or access, uh, which is to say uh, the market for a loan is the same as the market for anything else. And we know that price controls don't work on milk or gas or, you know, airline tickets or you name it. Um, and it doesn't work any better if you place price controls on consumer credit. Uh, the supply is driven by the cost of making the loan, which is um, the, the, the total cost uh, um, and the default risk. And the demand is driven by the reasons that consumers have it and what is their next uh, need it and what is their next best alternative. So the, the supply side consists of two things, which is first, the cost of making the loan. And it turns out a lot of the cost of making a loan do not scale with the size of the loan. So it's not 10 times more expensive to make a $3,000 loan than a $300 loan. And it's not 100 times more expensive to make a $30,000 loan. Uh, why? Because you've got employees, you've got regulation, you've got rent, you've got uh, utilities, um, you've got all the fixed cost of running a, um, a business, um, and you have to recoup that um, across your uh, uh, your loan sites in addition to the cost of, uh, of, of access to finance to make the loan. So whereas the cost of funds is a very small percentage of um, of uh, uh, a very large percentage of the cost of the mortgage, it's a pretty small percentage of the cost of making a small dollar loan because all these other costs are so large proportional to the uh, to the cost. The second thing, of course, is the default risk. Uh, and small dollar loans made to subprime borrowers have much higher default risk. And so when people don't pay their loans, um, other people do. And so what you end up with is um, for small loans to subprime borrowers who are very risky, it turns out to be a relatively high measured price by the APR, as John, as John said. And so what we found over time is that when we place price controls on interest rates, we shut off access, uh, uh, legal access to credit by consumers um, for unsecured credit um, uh, in particular. And they end up shifting to other things such as pawn shops, uh, which traditionally has been a very um, uh, clear substitute, but is uh, far inferior for most people when you consider the inconvenience of dealing with pawn shop and the relatively limited amount you can get. And even worse, what we've seen over history is recurrent of loan sharks, illegal loan sharking, uh, where desperate consumers who need money to pay their rent 
uh, or uh, or whatever end up uh, turning to um, to illegal lenders. Um, and so um, and so what we see is that the the implications of price controls when it comes to interest rates is really quite disastrous for consumers and ends up hurting those consumers who we claim to be helping the most. Right. Uh, Todd, uh, thank you um, so much for the addition. Uh, what I really wanted to hone in on here was the, the idea of using a an APR to categorize a loan that is not borrowed for, for a year. Uh, and this is something, Andrew, that I, I take great offense to uh, on behalf of the industry, uh, especially when it comes to uh, organizations like Pew Charitable Trust that are advocating on behalf of the, the, the big banks, um, releasing reports that uh, identify that six of the largest banks in the country are now offering specialized emergency loans at the uh, at the APR that is uh, so highly sought by activists and advocates um, for consumers, but that is so hard to actually deliver on in a realistic and pragmatic sense. So. When you get an APR for a loan that's borrowed for four months, why are why are regulators even al allowed to classify a, a four month loan at w with an APR when an APR is clearly defined as an annual percentage rate? I mean, it's a four month loan for a, using a, a 12 month measurement. Well, I, you're asking a fine question and it's a it's a source of debate. Uh, that we probably won't settle today. Um, I, I don't think it's it's the proper metric. And frankly, there's a lot of research out there that shows that um, the borrowers don't necessarily pay that much attention to the APR as a metric. They really look at the total cost uh, and they look and they make their decisions based on that dollar cost, not the, the APR. I mean, I'm sure Pro Professor Zwicky could give us a, a wonderful lecture with all sorts of uh, math equations about how APR really works and how it's uh, ex exceedingly impacted by its duration. Um, and a number of folks have, have made this point who, who frankly are probably, um, you know, there's certainly not industry. A lot of academics have to concede the point that um, that APR metric is, is not a great, it's a great metric for a 30 year mortgage. It's not a great metric for a short term loan. Uh, there are probably better ways to evaluate it. And I think it, once again, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, evidence to show that consumers really don't pay that much attention to it. So, so consumers don't pay attention to it, but you're still required to disclose the terms of the loan within the context of an APR. Correct. I mean, that's that's a requirement under the Truth in Lending Act, and it, it is what it is, you know. Sure, sure. And is that something that the industry has sought to challenge ever? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that debate has come up. Uh, the, the conversations have come up. Um, I, I think that um, honestly, the, the, the folks who don't like um, private industry offering small dollar credit that they really would like to see the post office be the allocator of credit, uh, in this space. Um, I mean, this is, this is one of the, the things that they, they use, but not all the things that they use. And I mean, I think it's just honestly, um, 
if, if we if we won that battle, we'd have to move on to a different one. So I think there are other things that are probably more worthwhile to really um, to debate, maybe more than that. But it, it's it is it is certainly it's an important item. Patrick, if I could just jump in, um, the, the of idea of APR goes back to sort of late 60s, early 70s. Um, and the idea was to kind of standardize pricing uh, in some sense so that consumers could shop among different offers, uh, right? And so uh, various, you know, lenders could have an interest rate, but they could have all these other different fees, right? You could think about all the fees that might go associated with that with a loan. And so the effort at the time was trying to standardize, make it easier for consumers to, to shop. The problem is, is that APR has come to be thought of as the price of the loan when it isn't. APR is not a price. APR is sort of a proxy for a price to help consumers compare different products. So it was never designed to be used for something like a usury ceiling. Um, and Andrew and John have both illustrated the problem, which is that APR, um, because it's not actually the price, it's a proxy for the price. It's a ratio, basically, of the cost to uh, to the, the principal, is you can artificially reduce the APR either by, as Andrew said, lengthening the loan, uh, paying it out over a certain amount of uh, time, or by increasing the principal. And so what we've seen, this is how stupid and counterproductive um, uh, usury, uh, price controls using APR is, is in states that have very strict usury ceilings, basically small loans don't exist. Um, uh, there was a paper by uh, Tom Durkin and Greg Ellihausen where they found that in, in Pennsylvania, for example, it has very strict price controls. It's impossible to get a loan for under, say, $2,000. Um, and um, only, you know, and, and poor credit risk can't get any credit at all. And so what kind of sense does it make to say we're going to protect consumers by only allowing them to get a loan if they have to borrow more than they actually want to borrow? Right. By basically forcing them to borrow two thousand dollars, even if they only want five hundred, because that's how you end up basically dealing with the fact of this arbitrary price, uh, what they're calling a price, which is just just APR. It's really one of the most idiotic public policy ideas of taking what was supposed to be a good thing for consumers to be able to compare prices and turning into this blunt tool for price controls. Todd, thank you so much for also bringing up the specific $2,000 figure. I mean, what that's requiring borrowers, uh, excuse me, lenders to do is lend more money, put more capital out on the street uh, for loans that have a higher than average default rate, which requires a greater assumption of risk on the part of the, the lender. So you have... Right. A, a, laws that are coming into play these interest rate caps that are coming into play that require if a, if a lender is going to continue to operate in the space with the additional regulation they're now being forced to lend more money to the same consumer restricting the total number of loans that they can offer right. um, and putting more money into each individual loan so that they can uh, make up the difference that they lost with the reduction in the, in the allowable interest rate yeah that's right as simple as that. Um, and Patrick, if you think about it, I mean, what other products are quoted, you know, yearly, yearly rates? I mean, uh, the great economist Thomas Sowell made the point is that quoting uh, uh, an annual percentage rate for a, like a two week loan is like saying a hotel room that's $100 a night is really $36,000 because that's 
how much it would cost if you stayed there 365 days a year. We don't quote hotel rooms like that, and we shouldn't quote, you know, that shouldn't quote, you know, uh, we should quote prices for short-term loans or interest rates as if they were a year. And it leads to all sorts of adverse consequences through the misunderstanding both by consumers and by, you know, policy people and lawmakers. Right, right. Uh, I mean, that's that's a great point, John. Um, when you're talking about um, that Thomas Sowell quote is the best. <laughs> it is it is it is a perfect example of why APR on a four month loan is 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 not is not a real measure of the loan. Um, thirty six that nobody rents a hotel room, John, for thirty six thousand dollars a year. People pay a hundred bucks a night, but if you extend that out for the duration of a year, it's $36,000 per year. Nobody talks about hotel rooms in that context. And the hotel industry would be up in arms if the if any state government came in and, and for, forced the hotels to start lending, or I'm sorry, to start allowing guests to stay in their rooms by disclosing an annual rate instead of a nightly rate. It's the same principle, right? Right, by having to advertise, let's stay here at 36000 I mean, just the price coming out, coming out like that, it, it just, uh, it just would, uh, would discourage potential and also call for outcry, you know, outcry that these, this is an, this is an outrage you know, from uh, lawmakers. So, I mean, this is the thing, if you, it, it would be, it would, but hopefully we rightly be seen as, uh, as absurd and this should be too. It's just that we've done this for so long. Sure, sure. And well, the other the other addition to that quote is um, it's the tuna one, right? Nobody buys tuna by the ton. Yes. Right. So you don't quote it by price by the ton. Oh, right, right, correct. Mm -hmm. um, Andrew, I want to kick it back over to you. The Online Lenders Alliance recently announced the release of a, of a survey, um, which identifies uh how whether people are whether borrowers are actually going back to uh back to big banks and borrowing from the big banks in lieu of borrowing from uh, their previous short-term lender and this comes from an argument that were a, a conversation that was started by the pew charitable trusts in pennsylvania earlier this year uh, in january i think it was they came out with this report an outrageous report that six of the eight largest banks in the country were now offering short-term loans and that's how you and i got to know each other was through our work on the no loan for you report where we conducted this secret shopper study we actually applied to the available banks in new mexico where the banks actually had a branch available for us to walk in and create the checking accounts that were required so that we could apply for the loan um, and we can get into that a little later on in our discussion, but tell us more about the survey that you recently conducted. Sure. Well, uh, in, as you, you indicated, in recent times, uh, activists have been, um, when, they're, when they're pushing for the restrictions on lending, typically rate caps, not always, but, but typically rate caps, they're saying don't worry about access to credit because six of the nation's largest, largest big banks that represent a, a pretty considerable percentage of borrowers in the country are now making loans along with credit unions. So it's not a concern. 
So we we wanted to take a, a look at this based on the data, not just the, the rhetoric. And uh, we released results from a survey that we did of over 100,000 um, of our member company borrowers from January. Uh, the, the survey was from January that shows nearly 30% of these individuals have primary accounts at those six banks that offer uh, small dollar lending products. We picked January because during that month because all the banks had their uh, products up and running. Um, and these customers could have used the bank product to meet their needs, but they didn't. And, you know, look, I'll, honestly, I'd have to say, um, we cannot say definitively why in each case they bypassed the bank product in every case. But I, I think it is very fair to say that the bank's um, respective eligibility requirements for those small dollar loans they're very stringent and we can talk more about that of like what what those really look like and but i would say in general look it's a it's a free country so people are certainly free to advocate for their positions that they support but when you when you purport to be a credible non-partisan source of information and you're not putting the relevant facts out there and instead presenting a distorted view of the world for lawmakers that's that's a problem um and especially when it's being used as a justification to remove credit options in the marketplace i just that's just wrong and i've got a problem with that andrew i have a problem with it too well let's talk about the stringent requirements that we see banks trying to uh impose on prospective borrowers and this is this is based on my personal experience with even trying to become a member of wells fargo um i unlike unlike pew uh the southwest public policy institute is not a shill for the big banks um, i want to make that very clear here <laughs> um we we i saw the pew charitable trust report and i we sought to actually emulate the consumer experience in this case uh, which was to apply for loans from the banks where there were branches in New Mexico. And, and that was required because I actually had to physically walk into a branch in order to be able to open a checking account with U.S. Bank, uh, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo was the worst consumer experience by far. One, I had to drive into the branch in order to find out that I had to schedule an appointment just to open a checking account. So I scheduled an appointment for the next day and came back the next day and uh, met with the financial advisor or banker or whatever, um, which not we're not we're not um, poo pooing any of the individual employees here. They're just doing their job. But the process by which Wells Fargo requires a consumer to physically be present at a predefined appointment time just in order to open a we're not even talking about the loan here. We're talking about the checking account, which was required to even apply for the loan. And and to date, I've, I've left my checking account open. I put the minimum deposit in there. I'm continuing to put cash in there so that I can cover the monthly maintenance fee that they charge you every month, which is $10 plus state sales tax, which comes to $10.76 per month. I mean, average, take that out over the course of a year, which I think it's Wells Fargo that requires a 12 month checking account history before they even make the option available to you to apply for one of these small dollar short term loans. 
So let, let's talk about that. What, just just the, the existence of a checking account, the direct deposit requirements at these banks. Why is that such a problem for the typical borrower of a short-term loan? Well, I, I guess it, it, first of all, I, I think when you, you, you look at all these requirements, um, when they have to have an account, have to have a performing account, sometimes up to a year, um, and then they need to go through the credit check and successfully go through the credit check. By the time you get to the end of that process, the people who can jump through all those hoops, they probably don't need a small dollar loan to begin with, right? I mean, it's, it's the old joke about banks like to lend money to the people who really don't need loans in the first place. That's their favorite customer. So I think that's a little bit, a little bit maybe uh, the case here. But I mean, let me let me back up a little bit and just say that I look, I don't begrudge the the, the banks being in the offering these small dollar loan pro products, nor do I begrudge credit unions offering offering them. Um, I, I personally think in, in my trade association takes the position that uh, when consumers have more options and more choices, that yields better outcomes. So I think when they have that, that's a great thing. What we take umbrage with is when um, there's a distorted view of those options being presented to the public and especially policymakers and that decisions are being made on those distorted views. That's that's what we really have a problem with. But I think there's a couple, a few things maybe to, to look at and, and maybe understand the bank's position on this a little bit more. Um, back at the, at the beginning of uh, last year, uh, GAO came out with a report talking about the small dollar loan market, especially with banks. And what they came back with is just Andrew, basically- What was that. the name of the organization that, that published the report? I'm sorry to interrupt you. GAL, sure. just for listeners. The, the, um, it's, I believe now it's called the Government Accountability Office is what okay. they refer to themselves, the right. GAO. Um, so it is, it is a government uh, body. It sort of operates independently and it's a little bit of a watchdog type, you know, research group. Um, and they basically came out and um, with a report here that, that said that banks are, they're reluctant to get into this space because of the regulatory uncertainty and that the, the cost of, of getting in is prohibitive. And it's actually, it's not really a moneymaker and um, they just don't have a lot of interest in it. And back, uh, I believe last year as well, or maybe it was two years ago, there was a congressional hearing and amongst some of the bigger banks, Jamie Dimon was asked uh, a question specifically, uh, can your, can, you know, as part of this panel, can your bank process a $500 loan for a term of 90 days for a new customer for a $45 fee? Um, and his response was, you're asking a great question. It does cost money to produce a loan and underwrite it. And if that cost goes into APR and you, and you include that in the 36%, it is impossible to do loans like that and make a profit. And that's ex precisely why we don't do it. That's, that's the, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest banks in the world. Right. And that's, I think that's how they look at it. Um, it's not a moneymaker. It's got a lot of regulatory risk. 
They're not very interested in doing it. These, these banks have gotten into it. I think it's fine that they make this offering. I just don't want the actual accessibility of that offering being distorted. Sure. Sure. I, I, uh, let, let's, let's take a, an even further step back from, from the, this conversation. Where did the 36% cap come from? And that's, that's to everybody. Does anybody know where, where that actually Yeah, originated? this is a, this, this is a historical thing, Patrick. And again, it just shows kind of how brain dead all this is. This goes way back to the 19, uh, 1920s. So, so essentially just a, a quick history lesson first uh, to, to pick up, just to close the loop on Andrew's point, there's this myth that there was some golden age at which banks were making small dollar loans to, uh, to, you know, middle-class and lower middle-class people. That's completely a myth. That world never existed. It's always been the case that banks don't make small dollar <clears throat> loans. Uh, banks uh, um, cater to higher income uh, individuals. They issue credit cards, but they've never had this product. It used to be that they would use personal finance companies. Um, uh, and nowadays there's a variety of products, including online products. So we need to put out of our head, this has ever been something banks uh, could do. Um, and just to get a sense of the history here, what happened was really, you know, the idea of usury ceilings goes way back to the Middle Ages. Um, and in the late 19th century, early 20th century in the United States, what we saw was this great migration to the cities. So when um, people left the farms, immigrants came in, basically became wage earners um, and needed small dollar loans, needed access to credit to deal with the vicissitudes of, uh, of city life that they didn't really have to deal with when they were living on the farm. Um, and uh, um, and this problem we said, and banks just weren't interested in these these people. And so what you saw was they came smack up against these uh, traditional usury ceilings. And what we saw was illegal loan sharks proliferated. Um, and um, uh, they just ran amok uh, in the large cities, preying on um, on people on the uh, and the uh, uh, a reform group called the Russell Sage Foundation, uh, which was um, a consumer advocacy group, said the answer here is we need to raise interest rate ceilings. And they basically came up with three percent a month or thirty six percent APR at the time, as at the time being a price where people could uh, um, uh, borrow um enough um to uh to 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 actually do something with it right but think about inflation since that time right if you think about the cost i was talking about earlier and the cost of, of doing business 36 percent um back then may have allowed you to borrow 100 or you know 200 dollars now we're talking once you adjust for inflation and the cost the underlying cost of making loans you need to make like a $2,400 loan in order to uh, to uh, break even uh, at that APR. And so it's this complete historical anomaly um, uh, that uh, that we're saddled with this arbitrary number of 36%. that goes back to a 3% rule of thumb back uh, in the 1920s, uh, really, that then got encapsulated in the Uniform Small Loan Law. Who is the original proponent of that? I, I mean, I, I still, I just don't, I don't understand why advocates would propose leveraging a price tool that's almost a hundred, that's over a hundred years old at this point. Because they think, happen? they think ordinary Americans are idiots. That's the answer. 
Uh, they think that uh, that ordinary people are too dumb to be able to manage uh, their own finances. And what you look at is people who use small dollar loans aren't dumb. They just don't have a lot of money. Um, and one thing that's fascinating about small dollar loans, uh, Patrick, is that um, and in this book that uh, that I wrote, you can read more about this consumer credit in the American economy. John wrote a uh, very nice book review of it when it came out. One of the points we make in the book is that small dollar loans tend to be life cycle products, by which I mean there's this unusual anomaly that people uh, face, which is when you are young, you have the largest demand for credit and the smallest supply of credit you're ever going to have in your life, right? Think about it. When you graduate from college and you've got to move to a new city, you've got to get an apartment, you've got to get a work wardrobe, you might have to get a car, you've got to start paying your own utilities, that sort of thing, right as you start a job, right? So, so you've got a very high demand uh, for credit um, and a very low supply for credit. You've got limited assets, you don't have a lot of savings, um, you might have student loans, right? And so you have a lot of need for credit um, without a lot of supply. And then once you get on your feet, the next thing you do is get married and have kids because we all know kids are really cheap, right? <laughs> so, so basically what happens is you go through life, you basically start off with needing a lot of credit with a minimal amount of supply. And eventually those two lines kind of cross, right? Uh, and as you become more financially established, you graduate into credit cards and, and that sort of thing. And so the data is very clear on this is that young people tend to use uh, small dollar loan products. Um, because they are higher risk and they have limited assets and limited incomes, um, but that uh, they're not just they're not stupid. Uh, that's just their best available option. Um, and it's better than bouncing checks or getting evicted um, or not being able to afford a washing machine or a car repair so you can get to work. Sure. Look, Todd, I'll, I'll admit to this right now. I was not the um... What were they called? It was like a, a paycheck advance. I don't think it was, um, uh, it, it wasn't quite a, a loan, or, but I remember Wells Fargo. Access? Sorry? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, direct, direct deposit advance. It, yes, that's what it was. It was a direct deposit advance back when Wells Fargo was operating that program. Um, and I, I think I was just into college when I had to take advantage of that one time. I had a part-time job, something had happened, and I needed access to uh, my my paycheck, not not two weeks from now, but yeah. that day. Right. Um, and uh, I, I op opted in to use this service and it was, it was useful, it was helpful. And then uh, I don't remember all of the details I was young and stupid at the time um but then wells fargo did away with the program altogether and i i couldn't access it anymore and uh when i needed it again um which i i did uh several months later um it wasn't available to me that's because the regulators told them to stop offering it uh during the obama administration i believe it was um they told the regulators leaned on the banks and told them that stop offering these direct deposit advance products, which of course turned out to just be a huge subsidy for uh, for the um, overdraft protection products of banks, which are on a you know are basically more expensive than payday loans uh, for, uh, for for most people. Um, and 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 you make another point, Patrick, which is you know in your and I, everybody should read Patrick's great report on no loan for you. Uh, because he talks about the realities, the economic realities. But one point you just pressed is 
that, that also takes a lot of time, right? And people who need money in a pinch need money in a pinch. Um, and to sit around and work at bank speed, um, you know, I mean, we have our, we all have our experiences with banks. One thing we know about banks is that, that its speediness is not uh, um, in getting you your money quickly, especially if you're a new customer, is not their strength. They do other things well. But for people who need money in a hurry, a bank is not often trying to sit down and get a bank loan. It's not likely to be a very uh, rapid um, way of meeting your short-term need for cash like you had. I'll admit that credit unions. Everyone uh, should read Patrick's report uh, that where you really, Patrick, really, you really did the shoe leather reporting of, you know, finding out are these loans actually available? And I think that where the anecdote illustrates the data that widespread they're they're not just because of the um uh, underwriting practices and economies of scale with with banks i think one thing that uh, i wanted to focus on that todd brought uh brought up is that he mentioned loan shark that you're not going to eliminate the need for short-term credit if you eliminate these loans so if you eliminate your legal avenues as far as offering short-term credit you will quite see a, a rise in illegal including the loan sharks, the uh, literal loan sharks that, you know, were um, leg breakers that you may have seen so much like uh, they were actually in pop culture in the 70s. You don't see as much in, that, in real life or in pop culture because you have legal options like payday loans and other forms of fintech and short-term lending. But you can actually see the criminal element get involved if you make it illegal to uh, offer short-term credit products that people need. If I could jump in on that, this is a real thing, and, and people don't 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 realize this. For example, there was a uh, a Senate report uh, done, an organized uh, crime report in 1968, that found that loan sharking was the second largest revenue source of the mafia. Um, when Robert F. Kennedy got elected to the New York Legislature, it was right during a time. I'm sorry, to the United States Senate. Um, it was right during a time that New York was cracking down on the mafia. Kennedy sent a letter and said, if you want to um, uh, go after the mafia, what you need to do, New York, is eliminate your usury ceilings, because that's what keeps the mafia in business, is uh, making money off of that. One guy, um, he was an FBI expert. Uh, he worked at the, uh, wrote a book when he was done. He estimated the size of the illegal loan sharking market in 1970 was about $10 billion, which is about $69 billion in today's dollars, which based on the estimates I've seen is about double the size of the entire adjusted for inflation, double the size of the entire payday loan market in America online and Brooks and mortar combined. Um, when, when you, when you do this, as John said, you could take away the supply, but you can't take away the demand for consumers who need access to, uh, to, to funds in a, in a pinch. Um, and there's been these, entrepreneurs, uh, to put it gently, uh, who have been willing to step forward and meet that uh, that need at pretty nasty and onerous terms. Um, and leg breaking was the least of what they would often do to people. As a way of being able to re recoup on that investment that they had made, it's the leg breaking. They, exactly, yes. Um, and they would do a lot of th things that were a lot worse uh, than leg breaking to, to people who didn't pay up. So, so to reiterate on that, low interest rates, enforced low interest rates are good for the mafia, right? Yeah. 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 It's, uh, um, and again, I'll give another example, which is Paul Samuelson, the, um, 
the first uh, American to win the Nobel Prize in economics, close friend of the, uh, the Kennedys. He testified in the Massachusetts state legislature in 1969. Um, and we have this, I believe, quoted in our task force report. He testified that the people who favor uh, usury ceilings are well-intentioned uh, people and the mafia. Uh, because this basically provides a mechanism for it. I mean, you want to talk about a true Baptist and bootleggers uh, scenario. Um, illegal lenders um, always supported um, uh, usury ceilings uh, because they knew that would take away their uh, their their competition. And I think Andrew said the answer correctly earlier is the answer to this is more competition. It's eliminating barriers to entry. It's eliminating arbitrary uh, uh, things that interfere with the ability to uh, uh, meet consumers that are at and design products uh, uh, that, that they need, not price controls that basically subsidize the mafia um, to, uh, to be able to, uh, is the only place that uh, consumers can go. Todd, the free market is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, and Andrew made the point, right, which is, um, you know, God bless them. All these guys can do this, right? If, if they want to, right? Go, let them give it a try. Um, consumers have pretty much voted with their feet, right? One, they Speed matters in this market, right? These sorts of things. The post office tried to run a pilot program. You may have heard about this. Um, they ran a pilot program, much ballyhoo thing. I, I don't know how much money they spent uh, trying to do this, but they made six loans and generated $35 in, in total fees for the post office uh, because they just don't know know how to do this, right? And one of the things consumers make clear about this is that one of the things they value about small dollar lenders is the convenience and accessibility. Uh, bricks and mortar payday uh, loan shops have long hours, not banking hours, right? And certainly not post office hours. Uh, we've had the online lenders that, uh, uh, that Andrew uh, works with. And, uh, um, and one thing we could say about the post office, God bless it. One thing we could say about the post office is convenience and customer service is definitely not what the post office is uh, <laughs> is known for, whatever it is. And if that's the margin that they have to compete on, it's little wonder they managed to make six loans and generate $35 in fees uh, with their uh, pilot program to try to provide bank, uh, banking services. I, I think we just provided them with a hundred and some billion dollar bailout right last year right yeah right that's right they can't deliver the mail so uh now that there's something else they can do they can lose money on i think this is the thing we've had a there have been a few like uh populists on the right that um uh, have attacked uh say payday loans and other form of short-term lending again with you know the uh being ill-informed about you know what the interest rates uh, actually actually are but the leftists you who are attacking payday loans you know give them credit that they have an they know it's going to reduce uh the short uh short-term loans to the private sector and not reduce demand they have an answer you know, have the government have taxpayers subsidize more loans the really the populace on the right don't really have an answer to what or don't consider that this would reduce the availability of loans and they really are not considering that you know this would feed into leftists either and left his hands either by having more illegal uh, and you know criminal uh, criminals make loans, or that you would increase the demand for the government to make lo loans if you if you reduce you know private sector alternatives. Something that keeps coming up in this conversation is uh, the importance of emphasizing the consumer experience. 
the online lenders that are in this space offer a essentially 24-7 access to this type of credit. Um, and that's, that's something that we haven't found mimicked by any other institution in the, in the consumer credit space. Credit um, cards for people, well, uh, for, for mainstream borrowers. Sure, sure. But, uh, um, thank you. Um, something, something though, that we, we wanted to expand the scope of the study from no loan for you. Uh, we're, we're going to be publishing this under the, the title, no loan for you Two, uh, coming next month. Um, but one thing that, that came to our attention was the credit unions were now starting to offer these types of short-term small dollar products at interest rates uh, below or at 36%. And I can tell you based on my actual experience now that my experience with the credit unions um, in, in more cases than not was worse than with the banks. Um, with uh, specifically with Viridian Credit Union, uh, oh my God. So one of the things that, that has been so missing from this uh, this argument before is somebody actually going out and applying for the loans, um, which I understand now why nobody's done this because my credit score has literally dropped over a hundred points in the last six months oh, just because of all of my applications. Look, 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 Todd, Andrew, John, I've already got my house. I've already got my mortgage, like Good. two and three quarter percent. I don't care anymore. I don't, Good. I'm not in a position to uh, need to go out and borrow money tomorrow. Um, so I wanted to take, I wanted to assume that, that risk per se, or that adverse effect that would hit my credit um, on behalf of uh, the, the industry. Um, somebody needed to do it. And I am uh, starting to get dozens of uh, adverse action notices from the credit unions now, apply, uh, you're pulling a, a hard credit inquiry um, the worst one that I had experienced was Viridian Credit Union. Um, and this one was, was really strange. And I'm wondering if we can actually talk about exactly why this might have happened. Um, I'd applied online. I completed the application. I filled in every field possible. I, I didn't leave anything to chance. Any required field, I, I input something. Um, the truth, you know, the truth about my income, the, the so that they could calculate the debt to income ratio, whatever. Um, and I, I was denied, I was denied credit. And I have a hunch that it was because I wasn't a member, at least at the time that I had made, uh, that I had completed the application. I completed the application. It said, we're not able to offer you uh, one of these loans at this time. Um, and when the adverse action notice came in the mail, under part one, the principal reason for credit denial, termination, or other action taken concerning credit. The, the, the explanation here was, quote, credit application incomplete. Why on earth? I, I completed it. I filled in every field. I could not have submitted more information on this application process. Why would they declare that my credit application was in, I could not have submitted the form if it was incomplete. Why would Viridian Credit Union be declaring that my credit application was incomplete, pulling a hard inquiry from my credit 
costing me points on my credit score. Um, why? What is this? What am I looking at? <laughs> I, I was going to tell you that that uh, the, under law, that the adverse action notifications are supposed to give you a pretty specific reason why there was a denial. So um, you would probably need to follow up with them to get more clarification on that. I would have, I would have thought. I mean, I, I, I trust you that the application was filled out in full, and so it sounds sort of odd that that was that was the rationale. Um, and yes, I would. I think you're well aware. I would warn you that these uh, these hard credit holds um, can impact your credit along the way. So be careful with that. But um, I do think that. Let me just go back to talking about sort of the, the policy aspect of all this, and um, with with credit unions. And once again, I, I don't begrudge any financial financial institution offering these products. Uh, to customers, et cetera. I just, we, the, the problem we run into is when um, there's, I would, we'll, we'll call it overpromising to say the least. And New Mexico was probably an area where the credit unions really became very large activists in this debate with the, the, uh, the rate cap. And um, there were 400,000, when you look historically, approximately 400,000 New Mexicans on average um, have taken out small dollar loans annually from a state licensed alternative lender, meaning they're not using a credit union or a bank. And 95% of these small dollar loans carried an APR above 36%. So that means when the rate cap went into place, 95% of the people or these loans that had been getting um, gone out the door were going to be impacted by that. And uh, advocates, uh, in, in New Mexico had said that the credit unions were going to uh, step up and fill this void. I mean, my, my response to that was like, who's stopping them from doing it today? Right. Um, if that's what they really wanted to do, but they just don't do it. Um, so I think it, this is gonna be um, pretty, pretty telling as we move forward. We're sort of at the beginning of this process as it relates to, uh, to New Mexico um the, the rate cap just went into place at the beginning of the year so we don't really know the impact of the rate cap yet we do know that in the six months leading up to the implementation date there was a almost eight percent decline in the number of alternative credit providers so we can see the, the marketplace even before the law went into place the marketplace started shifting and it started shifting uh, in such a way that there were fewer, uh, fewer providers of credit out there to New Mexican consumers. And, and one of the things that you, that you sort of describe in your report, Patrick, you made the experience is there are a lot of strings attached um, to these uh, uh, bank and especially credit union small dollar loans. It depends on the institution. But often you have to have been a member of the credit union for a minimal, uh, minimal amount of time. Often you have to have a direct uh, deposit uh, agreement already set up uh, with the uh, with the credit union. Um, you uh, um, uh, you know like uh, th things like that. Uh, um, and so uh, Victor Stango did an article for Regulation Magazine about a decade ago, and he basically asked, yeah, he did a survey of uh, consumers and asked, do you prefer uh, people who use these products do you prefer credit union products or payday loan products and they overwhelmingly preferred 
payday loan mar uh, products, once you explain the strings that would have to be done, the, the, the upfront fees to open the account, the minimum uh, um, uh, deposit requirements, all these sorts of things. And so it could be any of those various things could be a basis for, um, for, for denying this. And, and to Andrew's point, we, we have to keep in mind that for, for people, for credit unions and banks, the primary alternative for people who use small dollar loans for, for, uh, for a lot of these customers is, um, overdraft protection. Um, and, uh, uh Credit unions make a lot of money off of overdraft uh, protection. Um, in part, that's because so many other uh, uh, their their ability to market products is so limited otherwise. But that's the reality, and, and there's ample ex um, evidence now that shows that when you get rid of payday loans, uh, over use of overdraft protection goes up dramatically. Use of uh, uh, bounce check checks go up, let utility payments go up. There are all these things. And so um, when banks go after payday loans, they've got their own mercenary interest um, backing them up in terms of uh, being able to use this for their overdraft protection products programs. Sure. Well, look, um, Todd, just <laughs> just based on on our, our conversation today, I, I can tell you that the, the credit unions do, in fact, have pretty stringent requirements that um, are unattainable for some borrowers. And, and that's coming from the position of a huge portion, uh, relatively speaking, a huge portion of the New, Mexico, of New Mexico's population and Albuquerque's population, the largest metropolitan area in the state. Um, so many of those people are considered unbanked or underbanked. And if they're presently unbanked or underbanked, meaning they don't have access to a traditional institution, what happens in the case where somebody needs access to emergency credit and they're being instructed by their credit union or their bank that they need to have had a checking account open with recurring direct deposits into that checking account for over 12 months? I mean, it destroys the whole purpose of, of being able to have access to emergency credit, which is something that is provided by online lenders and storefront lenders. Exactly, exactly right. And I can tell you that based on my personal experience in this space, that applying for just a credit union membership is is sometimes a, a chore. It took me three. Okay, I, here here's here's the, uh, the 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 precursor of no loan for you too. Um, it took me over three weeks, and it took me. Um, I think it was it was. 14 applications to different credit unions before I finally got approval from one. Now, the only approval that I had gotten and where I had actually gotten to the point where I was able to uh, extract the funds that were offered by the loan into an actual checking or savings account. Um, the only time where I was able to make that happen was with a credit union where I was already a member for at least 12 months. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't it's a credit union where I have an auto loan and I had an auto loan because the dealer said, oh, here's the cheapest auto loan. I said, yes, whatever. The, the, the rate was the lowest. So I, I took that auto loan and I ha I've had it for a year. I've been a member for a year. There were no right. other weird arbitrary requirements to join or be a member other than like a $5 deposit into a savings account or whatever. Um, but it was like a $30,000 auto loan and uh, i've had it for a year and as a result of that i had an established membership history with this credit union where uh, by when i went to apply for this loan they gave it to me 
And in, in the defense of this credit union, the application process was actually pretty straightforward. It was intuitive and it was quick. I literally had access to my funds immediately, but it took me three weeks of failed applications with other credit unions where we were trying to emulate the consumer experience where they did not have an existing membership. It took me three weeks of going through those applications before I finally settled on trying to apply for one of these uh, loans with uh, with the existing credit union where I had already obtained membership uh, prior to starting this process. And, and this, again, we, we can learn from the lessons of history back when credit cards first came around. Uh, banks in states, uh, this was before you could export uh, interest rates uh, under the uh, Marquette decision. Banks and states with strict usury ceilings um, had a lot of strings attached before you could get a credit card. You had uh, um, you had to have a bank account uh, at that uh, that bank, for example, right? Or you have to use other products uh, from that bank. And what you're finding here is precisely because these are not economically viable standing on their own two feet, they tie them to other products. They might use them as a as a loss leader, or they might use them as a service product, right? but they're using them um, in connection. They're gonna only give you one of these loans if they can make them, they have to make their money off of you somewhere, whether it's a deposit account or a car loan or mortgage or home equity loan or whatever the case might be to be able to offset um, the fact that uh, this is a, a money losing proposition for them just on the basic economics. Sure, well, Todd, I, I know that uh... I am paying Wells Fargo $10.76, including sales tax, uh, every month for oh. the duration of uh, of this checking account to the point where I can actually try to apply for one of those short-term loans. So they are definitely making money off of me, but it's for the good of the cause. Well, there uh, you go. Yes. Uh, uh, we're uh, we're pretty much out of time. Andrew, John, and Todd, thank you so much for joining me today. Did we have any other closing comments that we wanted to add in before we uh, pull chalks and say goodbye to this episode? Well, I, I think yeah, I would just, sorry, I would just say that uh, you know I would I would hope from our vantage point, and probably you know from probably based on what we've talked about today, that I hope that um, that federal and state regulators and lawmakers can consider ways to improve financial inclusion by removing barriers to increased innovation and competition in the marketplace. And uh, I think that's going to be, that's going to ultimately yield the best outcome for consumers. In our uh, CFPB task force report, volume two um, contains a whole, it contains 101 recommendations. The overarching theme of our task force report um, is on financial inclusion and competition and innovation. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that that's that's been his history has taught us competition is the best way to get consumers greater access at lower prices, and higher quality. And it's pretty clear that like any other market, competition works. Competition is go going to be the way that we're going to continue to create uh, better products and more financial inclusion for uh, for American consumers. Couldn't agree with you more, Todd and Andrew. Uh, anything else, John, for the good of the order? Well, Patrick, thank you for having me on with these distinguished guests. And, uh, and again, you've got a great study at Southwest Public Policy Institute doing great work. I would certainly associate with myself with uh, competition as the competitive as the first word in the name of our uh, our think tank here, the Competitive Institute, <laughs> CEI. And we've championed, I mean, in competition in this area too, we've championed, for instance, uh, credit unions, getting rid of barriers to credit unions, 
making uh, more business loans. So I think, you know, a lot of it is, you know, is trying and failing. One of the things that your experience I think shows is that credit unions and banks can actually learn a lot from online lenders, from members of Andrews groups and some of the competing, you know, fintech lenders out there. One of the regulations we championed that was a, a tr uh, was actually started as a Trump era uh, era rule from the Office of Comptroller of the Currency, but was unfortunately overturned by the Democratic Congress was the true lender rule that would let fintechs, online lenders, and others partner with banks to uh, export loans across state line and be subject to the original state you know, interest rate, where the which banks big banks can already do with credit cards after the Marquette decision, and that's a good thing and open the credit card market to a lot of people, but we should be able to have this with small dollar loans too. So we've read about this and other things at, at CEI.org. John, thank you so much. Uh, you can learn more about the Competitive Enterprise Institute at CEI.org, more about the Online Lenders Alliance at OnlineLendersAlliance.org. Todd, Andrew, John, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure. I appreciate it very much. Ladies and gentlemen, you just heard episode 10 of the Southwest Public Policy Institute's SPPI TV, the public policy podcast of the Institute. Uh, it was a pleasure. Uh, you can find out more about the Institute at SouthwestPolicy.com. We go live every Friday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you next week.